0: We are in Isaiah and we are in chapter six. So up until this point, we have been addressing Jerusalem and Judah. And he has been saying nasty things about them, that they have fallen into pride and error and so forth. They are not gonna go into exile yet. It's gonna be a hundred years or so before Judah and Jerusalem go into exile. Ephraim is going to go into exile much sooner than that. So chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory." King Uzziah died about 740 BC. This is one of, I believe, three visions of the throne room of God. One here by Isaiah, then there's one by Ezekiel when he sees the Merkava, the chariot, and he sees the wheels underneath it and so forth, and then the third one is John in the book of Revelation. A number of years ago, Ray did quite a nice presentation, and each one of these guys sees it from a different perspective. So Ezekiel is looking up. It isn't clear what Isaiah is doing, probably looking straight on, and John, of course, is looking straight on, but John is apparently below the seraphim. Now, the other thing, the train of his road filled the temple. At the time Isaiah is writing, the temple is still standing. The first temple has not yet been destroyed. So when he sees his vision, the Lord sitting upon a throne and the train of his robe filling the temple, it isn't quite clear what he's seeing, whether he's got a vision of the temple itself or whether he, like John, has popped up into the overhead and has a vision of God himself. Because one of the things about John's vision is you have the sea of glass underneath his feet and all that kind of stuff. That doesn't appear here. This looks to be a vision of perhaps God being in the temple between the cherubim. Now the the seraphim are speaking, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. There are two interpretations of that that I know of. Interpretation number one is, wow, are you really holy? I'm gonna say it three times, you're really holy. The other is it could be enumeration. Holy, 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 father, son, spirit. Instead of being, wow, are you really holy, God? It could be an enumeration of the three persons of the Godhead, each of whom is, of course, holy. So verse 4, And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So this appears to be the temple in Jerusalem that we're talking about, that he's seen, not heaven itself. And as you remember, the house being filled with smoke, is what happened when Solomon inaugurated the temple. The place was filled with smoke and nobody could go inside for a time. Similarly, when Moses inaugurated the tabernacle, it was filled with smoke and nobody could go in for a time, to include Moses. And you remember also the revelation at Sinai, when God descends on the mountain, he descends in smoke, And Moses stands outside of the smoke until God invites him to come in. So this harks back to Sinai, the inauguration of the tabernacle and the inauguration of the temple. So when God speaks, the whole place is filled with smoke and nobody can come in until the smoke clears and God invites them in. So verse four again, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is sort of signature reaction when confronted with either God or an angelic being. When someone realizes that he is in the presence of a supernatural being, either God or an angel or pre-incarnate yeshua or whatever and they all go down and sort of have to go change the linen because it's apparently such a powerful and moving experience and when the angels announce the birth of the messiah what's the first thing they say fear not be not afraid so the idea that angels show up to announce the birth of the messiah to shepherds in the field the first thing that they say is don't be afraid Because the natural reaction is fear, panic, losing your knees, various physical reactions of terror. And Isaiah reacts in exactly the same way. Let me read 6 and 7 and then come back and talk some more. So, Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me and having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar... And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Notice that your sin is atoned for. One of the things about Yom Kippur, if you read the Yom Kippur instructions in the Torah, the atonement of sins is the very last thing that happens in the set of instructions. In other words, you go through this long, detailed list of instructions on how to get into the presence of God and be safe and all that kind of stuff, and then at the end, it's, oh, by the way, you'll be forgiven. And it's sort of literally almost an, oh, by the way. We think of Yom Kippur as the object of the exercise is to be forgiven. The way the Torah presents it is the object of the exercise is to come into the presence of God and a byproduct of being in his presence is your sins are automatically forgiven. If you can get into the presence of God, your sins are forgiven. And so what Isaiah is having happen to him here is he has been taken up into the God's presence. And the seraphim come and touch his lips with a burning coal from the incense altar. And, oh, by the way, your sin is atoned for. So in the Torah... And here in Isaiah as well, he comes into the presence of God and he realizes that he is completely unworthy to be in the presence of God. Yet having come into the presence of God, his sins are atoned for. The question was, as a prophet, it would seem that his lips were clean. The other thing going on here is it's entirely possible that this is not in sequence. The commissioning of Isaiah this chapter 6 part may have been something that happened to him at the beginning of his ministry, and then the first five chapters, he is sort of backfilling, if you will. There's lots of places in the Torah, which I believe, as do many rabbis, not that that makes any difference, are out of sequence on how they were written. I believe the incident of the golden calf, for example, is out of sequence. The actual golden calf incident Happened before the specifications for the tabernacle, I think. Other people don't. This is not, thus saith anybody except me, and I don't have any authority whatsoever. It's just what I think. So all the way down to verse 8 now. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go, and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. I have talked about this lots and lots of times, and I will talk about it again tonight. It helps to read this in conjunction with Isaiah 29. Isaiah 29 describes the process of exile, both exile and return. So I'm going to skip over to 29 And, of course, when we finally get to Isaiah 29 in our regular study, we'll do this again. So I'm not going to go through this in great detail. Isaiah 29, 9. Pause and wonder. Blind yourselves and be blind. They are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. For the Lord has poured out on you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, namely the prophets, and has covered your heads Namely, the seers. The whole vision has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed, which would delivered to one who is literate, saying, please read this. He says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And the book is delivered to one who is illiterate, saying, read this, please. And he says, I am not literate. So the process when God decides to send a nation into exile is the first place is he closes their eyes and covers their heads. And their eyes are the prophets. The prophets are the ones that see into the spiritual realm. And their seers, or their wise men, are the ones who understand what's going on. So the first thing that God does when he's about to send them in exile is he shuts down prophecy and he makes their seers not wise. And then he closes the book. And the book, of course, is scripture. So the idea there is when the seers and the prophets are unable to read the book and the people are unable to read the book, they have no resources available to them that would enable them to turn and go in a different direction. And if you keep reading in Isaiah 29, at the end of that process, he restores prophecy and seers and he opens the book. So Isaiah 29 is the entire process, if you will, of going into exile. Now, coming back to Isaiah 6, in verse 9 again, he said, Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears. And I'm going to say to you, their eyes are the prophets, and their ears are the seers. And understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. What he's saying here is, I have decreed and decided that this people needs to go into exile. So what I'm doing is now I am taking away the resources, prophecy, the seers, and understanding of the book. I'm taking that away because I need to get an army of Assyrians ready here to go, and that's going to take me a little while. So... In the meantime, since I'm in the process of calling up an Assyrian army to come and take these folks out, I don't want them all of a sudden to wake up, and I've got this Assyrian army coming down, and it's got nothing to do with them. I'm obviously putting human terms on this, but God has decided exile is what's now appropriate. So once that decision is made, he sets it up so that that decision will come to pass. A prophet is someone who speaks for God into a specific situation. So a prophet comes and says, repent, and tells you why you need to repent, and he's speaking for God. A seer is a wise man, someone who reads scripture and understands what's going on and understands the signs of the times. There are three voices in Hebrew scripture. There's the voice of the priest, the voice of the prophet, and the voice of the king. Each one of them has an area that he's supposed to speak in. So the priest, he's the one that determines what's holy and what's common, and he's the one that determines what's clean and unclean. The prophet speaks for God, and he speaks into a particular situation. The priest deals in cyclical time. His bailiwick is the weekly Shabbat, the new moons, the annual cycle of feasts, and so forth. So his time horizon is cyclical the prophet speaks into a specific situation something is going on in israel that god sends a prophet most often saying straighten out he speaks into historical time so his time horizon is historical passed all the way to the end times in some cases and then the king is the one that speaks with human wisdom there's nothing particularly wrong with human wisdom. Don't touch a hot stove because you'll get burned. You know, I mean, there's all sorts of human wisdom that is appropriate, and that's the voice of the king or the seer, if you will, somebody who deals with human wisdom as opposed to a prophet or a priest. My point is, when these guys are getting ready to go into exile, what God does is shuts all that down, and he seals the book so that you won't be able to understand how Scripture speaks to your specific situation. It literally says that you give it to someone who is literate, and he says it's sealed, and you give it to somebody who's illiterate and he says, I can't read, but the point is, it's not available. I am of the opinion, this is genealogy again, this is just my opinion, that one of the reasons we have so many denominations of people who follow the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. You've got half a dozen sects of Jews. You've got God only knows how many sects of Christians, all of whom claim to be reading the same book. I am of the opinion that that book has been sealed for 2,000 years. And the reason that you have so many divergent opinions is because people don't really understand it. It is my prayer that the book is being opened now because what you've got now which is fairly new really only having gotten rolling since probably world war ii is you have messianics who see the torah and judaism as being the base and the foundation but they also see the messiah it is my prayer that what's happening in the messianic movement is an opening of the book they have no authority for that other than a hope Please understand, I am not sitting here saying that I have got some special insight. I don't. But the perspective that messianics have is somewhat different. Maybe good, I hope. So verse 11, Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. So what we're talking about here is exile. Until the Lord removes people far away. God has decided that Israel needs some time in exile. So that's what's going to happen. Verse 13. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak. Whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed... Is it stop? I believe that this is a messianic reference. I will give you my perspective on Israel's exile. You all know that the northern kingdom went into exile first in the eighth century B.C. The southern kingdom went into exile about 100, 125 years later. So you had the Assyrian exile, which took the northern kingdom and scattered them. And those are the lost tribes. That Lots of people have theories about where they are, but nothing much definitive. The southern kingdom maintained its cohesiveness. They went into Babylon as a unit. They maintained their identity. And I will suggest to you that they have been in exile for... 2,400 years. And what you had at the end of the 70-year Babylonian exile is most of Judah stayed in exile. It was a small remnant that came back to Israel. That remnant stayed in the land of Israel long enough to get the Messiah born. And then once the Messiah was born, they went right back into exile for another 2,000 years. So verse 13 again, though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So the idea that you have a stump, which is to say part of Judah comes back from Babylon. They hang around there for a couple hundred years. The Messiah is born. Yeshua is born. And then... At the end of Yeshua's life, what, 35 years after the crucifixion, they go back into exile. So I see the return from Babylon as not a return from exile because most of them stayed in exile and never came back. So the return from exile that I see is the one that started in 1948. That's the first return from exile. And the the Babylonian thing, as I say, was just an excursion so that the holy seed could be born and the Messiah could come into the world. And then it was turn them right back around and send them back into exile. That's my perspective. Like it or not, free to argue with you, whatever. But the whole point is, if we look at Israel being burned like a terebinth or an oak, when that is done, they don't move the roots. The roots stay where they are. So the root remains in the land. And so according to the prophecies and everything else, the Messiah has to be born in Bethlehem. So you have a root, the stump, if you will, but still has life in it. So part of Judah comes back and the seeds sprout from the stump and from that comes the Messiah. On to chapter seven. In the days of Ahab, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Remember, we started back in chapter 6, the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah had a son, Jotham, who was a king for a while, and then Ahaz is Uzziah's grandson. In the northern kingdom, the king is Remaliah, who has a son, Pekah, who was apparently a military commander. They ally with Syria, reason being the king of Syria. And I don't know that reason isn't a um, throne name, because you get a number of reasons, and I'm not sure what the timing is there. Don't hold me to that, but it certainly is possible. So Ephraim, of whom Remali is the king, allies with Syria, and they are going to come against the southern kingdom, against Jerusalem. So they came down to wage war, but they didn't mount an attack. Verse 2. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. The house of David, of course, is the southern kingdom. And, of course, when they find that Ephraim and Syria are coming against them, they panic. Verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sher-Jeshub, your son. And sher is Isaiah's son, and his name means a remnant shall return. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sher-Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, which is in the north of Jerusalem. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Risen in Syria and the son of Remaliah. So, what he's saying is, Calm down, these two smoldering stumps, if you will, the imagery there is they have burned out. They may look formidable, but from my perspective, they are simply smoldering stumps. And of course, we know that the northern kingdom is going to go into exile here very shortly. So from God's perspective, there's not much left there for sort of continuing the, the imagery of a burned down tree. So these two smoldering stumps of firebrands and the fierce anger of region of Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim, the son of Remaliah, has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is reason. Within 65 years Ephraim will be broken to pieces so that it will no longer be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramaliah. If you are not firm in faith... You will not be firm at all. So, what he's saying is, he sends Isaiah, a prophet, to the king, telling him, just be firm and believe in me, because if you don't, you're not going to be firm at all. If you don't trust me, nothing else you trust is going to work. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. So, When it says the Lord spoke to Ahaz, obviously the Lord is speaking through Isaiah, the prophet. And is saying, the prophet has told you that these guys are not going to conquer you. And furthermore, I am standing here and I'm telling you, ask for a sign to give you confidence. Just tell me what you want to see and you'll see it. And everything will be fine. And Ahaz, getting all very pious, says, oh, wouldn't think of putting the Lord to the test, quoting Deuteronomy. However, it does not go over well. Verse 13, and he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to worry men that you worry my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. So it's saying, uh, you're being a bit boorish here, guy. I guess what we would call this is virtue signaling. So what Ahaz is doing here is virtue signaling, and neither God nor Isaiah is buying it. They both see right through it. So God is going to give him a sign. Verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Refusing the evil and choosing the good is sort of like I'm no longer able to go out and come in, which is to say I can't come and go at my own will. What it means is when he quits being a toddler, when he gets to the point where he knows good from bad, it's a fairly common biblical phrase. Verse 16, for before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread shall be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So what he's saying is a virgin is going to conceive and bear a son. And when that son is no longer a toddler, then the two nations that you're afraid of are going to be gone. And furthermore, I am going to bring upon them something that you haven't seen since the northern and the southern kingdoms split and the thing i'm going to bring is the king of assyria the king of assyria is going to be the instrument that god uses to destroy syria and to destroy ephraim and in fact one of the things that the king of assyria will do will be to place judah under tribute but will not destroy it there's three perspectives on this Perspective number one is that there is a young woman who is not yet married, who is known to Ahaz, who is going to get married and have a son. She is now a virgin because she's unmarried. She's known to him. She's going to marry, have a son, and that son is going to be then named Emmanuel And he is going to be the sign, if you will, because as he grows up, when he gets old enough to choose good over evil, then at that point, the Assyrians are going to take out the northern kingdom in Syria. That's perspective number one. Perspective number two is that it's going to be a son of Isaiah. But the problem with that is Isaiah already has a son, so his wife was not a virgin. And then perspective number three is we're talking about Yeshua, the Messiah. So you're seeing, if you will, two different fulfillments of this prophecy. The first fulfillment being local, which a young man by the name of Emmanuel is going to be the sign. But it also then is the sign of the Messiah, the virgin birth. Those are the three perspectives. Choose the one you like. Jews who read this, the word for virgin is Alma which is young woman, and they don't see it as a sign of the virgin birth, in other words, the annunciation of Mary. That's just not how the Jews see it. That's why I say the third option here is a dual fulfillment, which is to say something happens locally, which is in fact a sign to Ahaz, and then several hundred years later, you have the birth of Messiah. This passage is then quoted in the book of Matthew as a prophecy of Mary giving birth without having known her husband. Verse 18, In that day the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt, and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and the clefts of the rocks, and on all the thorn bushes and all the pastures. So the idea is the Assyrians are going to take out the northern kingdom, and Judah is going to try and ally with Egypt. So you're going to have Egyptians and Assyrians both in the area. The Assyrians are, in fact, going to prevail, and Judah is going to be put under tribute to Assyria, which will last pretty much until the Babylonians come down. So the fly that is in the streams of Egypt is the Egyptian army, and then the bee Is the Assyrian army. Verse 20, in that day the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and will sweep away the beard also. So the idea of shaving with a razor in the Middle East, someone who is shaved is shamed. And that, by the way, in some cultures continues to today. So for example, during the Korean War, American soldiers all had buzz cuts, short hair, which, by the way, they picked up in World War I so that you didn't have any place for lice. Before World War I, soldiers had long flowing hair and beards and mustaches and all that. World War I sort of put a kibosh on all that because of A, poison gas, and B, lice, and so forth, living in the trenches. So the army got in the habit of short hair. When the army was sent to Korea, during the Korean War, the North Koreans and the Chinese put out, ah, the Americans are sending us criminals. See, they all have short cut hair. Because in the culture there, the only people whose hair was cut were criminals. as part of a prison sentence. So the idea that America was sending their criminals here to fight was used as a propaganda ploy, if you will, by the communists. So the idea here of shaving with a hired razor is the idea that Assyria is going to put Judah to shame verse 21. In that day a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep and because of the abundance of milk that they give he will eat curds for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. This is not good. What it means is the only thing the land is good for is grazing. It is no longer producing crops. What's happened is, and we'll see this in just a minute, that the land will be so desolate that the only thing that can survive are grazing animals. So there'll be lots of milk, and the idea is that those animals are not producing young, so that there's plenty of surplus milk to eat, but the land is not producing and the animals are not producing. Verse 23. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. In other words, there won't be any pastures, there won't be any fields of grain, there won't be any vineyards and orchards. The land is going to return to the wild, which is the reason that the only thing that you've got to eat is milk and curds, because the only thing that can live there are grazing animals. Verse 25, and as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. So the idea where there used to be a hoe, which is to say it used to be cultivated land, is now going to be full of briars and thorns, and the only thing that can survive there are cattle and sheep.